Good morning. Would you please open your Bibles to Matthew 18, 15 through 20. It's the word of the Lord. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Joe Bartimus, and I'm one of the pastors at College Park. And as you've probably figured, Mark is not here. He's with Dale and Nate over in the Ukraine. And actually, I got an email from him like at 2.30 this morning, which in their time wasn't 2.30, and I didn't read it at 2.30. But I was just encouraged because he's praying for us, and it's just neat to have a pastor that even if he's not here, he's still praying for us and cares about what's going on here. You know, today is September 12th, which is pretty innocuous, right? September 12th. But if you go back a day, it's September 11th yesterday, which is 9-11, and that rings out with a sense of, and probably a lot of emotions come to people's minds. You know, when you see a picture like that, it's almost as though you don't have to say anything else because you remember where you were. I, I even thought of these kids up here. You know, we're getting a generation that they don't, they weren't, a lot of them weren't alive then. That's pretty sobering because to me it seems like it was just yesterday or the day before. And I remember being called down from my office. Hey, look at what's on TV. And it was bizarre and we didn't know what was happening. And there were these weird, it looks like airplanes flying into the Twin Towers. Did they get off course? What happened? And finally we realized that America was under attack. And that's not what you normally hear In the United States of America, we kind of prided ourselves, and that doesn't happen to us. Well, it is happening to us, and we were pretty sobered, at least I know I was, and it caused me and others to kind of change our way of thinking when we realized the potential real and present danger that we didn't even know was there. And things like this would happen, that we were willing to give up some of our freedoms. I don't know about you, but I'm even today at times a little irritated, but generally really glad that when I get on an airplane, there's a lot of security, and I'm not worried about me, you know, check me out all you want. I'm worried about whoever else that I don't know that may be getting on there, right? And so I'm like, check us out. I'm willing to give up some of my freedom. I'm willing to give up some of my individual privacy. And I remember back then that there was something, you know, we're this country of individuals, And yet I remember then that in the football games, you know, everybody's standing up, these big hero football players saying there's a cause bigger than us. And the American flags were all over the place. And we were singing, God bless America, whoever God is, at least we know who America is. And we're kind of singing out, hoping that something bigger than us can help us. Um, Even the idea of purity, we were committed to not moral purity, but we didn't want anybody in this country that wasn't after the good of the country because we realized there were people that were out to destroy this country. And so we wanted to get rid of those kind of people. And I tell you, the, the fervor was high. There was no expense too costly 
to protect ourselves and what we loved and our country. And if you were there, you remember how that stuff just was, I mean, for me, even looking at something like that, it just kind of conjures up a lot of those thoughts in my mind. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about, I did that in the first service. We're going to talk about church discipline. And I got to tell you, then I realized Mark was going to be gone this week and I get to preach on church discipline. And I'm thinking, well, if I'm picking all the texts in the scriptures, you know, there's there's other texts that I might have chosen before this. And yet I'm convinced of this, and that is we're in a war. And the war, the primary war in this world, in this cosmos, is not a war against terrorists that are hiding. It's a war that's spiritual in nature. It's a war for the souls of humanity. And we either believe that or we don't. I mean, we come in and we can complain about the gravel. The fact is, there's a war against the church of Jesus Christ. And one of the cool things, and yet sobering things, is that God hasn't left us defenseless. He hasn't left us to say, oh well, good luck with that. (laughs) As a matter of fact, and in this text we're going to see, and I, I divide it into three sections, that there are three aspects to Christ's plan for protecting the purity of the church, because apart from God's grace and apart from our attentiveness, we are very prone and, and we are ones who are easy prey for the evil one if we are not aware and alert. And if you think that's not true, then you think wrong. There is a very real and present and clear danger in the church of Jesus Christ. And so God helps us with that. <clears throat> now, um, as we look at this text, well, I, I gave the outline here. I forgot that I put that up there. That's what the outline of the text is going to be. The first step is this. When God realized, or when Christ realized, I've established this church, a battle is going to be going on. I want my church to be pure. He came up with a plan for purity. And it's mentioned, and it's described very clearly in the text in verse 15. But before we get to that, I want to read the context, because you could look at this and say, all right, I, those are the steps of church discipline. We're going to talk about those in a minute. And, and is that the whole message that God has for us? Hey, if you're, if you're not careful, someday you're going to get kicked out of the church and you don't want that to happen. Let me give you the context of Matthew 18 before we jump into it. There's at least three parts to the context. Look at verse 7 of chapter 18. And Mark dealt with this last week. Matthew 18. I hear the pages clicking because that's really good. <laughs> Here's what he says. Jesus says this, woe to the world for temptations to sin. And my translation has an exclamation point, which isn't in the original text. But the point is, there's temptations going on. For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And then look at verse 8. Here's the way to grow your church. Church growth 101. If your hand or foot cause you to sin, massage it with oil. (laughs) Poor hand. Kind of maybe give it a little bit more to eat, however you give your hand. Here's what it says. You get the picture, and I'm not going to illustrate it clearly. Just cut it off. Cut it off. You say, oh, obviously he doesn't mean that. And you know what? I don't think, because I don't have any knives up here, so you can't come up afterward or whatever, and you can't. If you, if you have a hand that's causing you to sin... Probably what you ought to do is your hand must be going to the computer, going wherever it is. Why don't you cut the computer off? Maybe that's the point. But maybe the point is also, however serious you take your hand, I take my hands pretty seriously. If you think going to hell with both of your hands is worth it, you're wrong. You are. 
If you think that maybe there's more important things than hands, you're right. That's what he's saying. And then here's what he's saying. If you just kind of put it down to its, its smallest common denominator, he says we ought to have a church of people or a group of people or a community of people that are so committed to Jesus Christ and to his holiness and to his purity that they'll do whatever it takes on an individual level to be pure before him. It's that self-examination. It's in the context of, yeah, church discipline is in the context, but before church discipline, there ought to be a group of people so doggedly committed to Jesus Christ and his holiness that whatever it takes in their life, they're going to do it because of him, not because of them. Boy, I pray to God, College Park's a group of people like that. That's one context. The next context is immediately preceding this Matthew 18, 15 text. And it's the lost sheep. And you know that parable. There's a hundred sheep. Guy's got a hundred sheep. One takes off. Tell you what my view would be. That stupid sheep. (laughs) But we all know all sheep are stupid. Let them go. I got 99. I don't need them. And and here's what the text says. The shepherd goes after the one, right? And we love that because we somehow think that could be us someday. And you know what? It could be us. And so when you see this church discipline, don't take it out of context. There's a context of self-discipline. There's a context of a shepherd who goes after one sheep and brings him back into the fold because he cares about him. And then the context, and I can't wait for next week when Mark's back and he gets to preach verse 21, which to me would be, Actually, this is an important text to preach this morning. But verse 21 of chapter 8, it talks about Peter coming up and saying, Lord, I'm tired of forgiving. How often? And he says, 70 times 7, which equals 490, which really means you just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. Then he gives that illustration of of an unforgiving person. And you've got to come back next week and hear it. So the context of Matthew 18 and the discipline is self-discipline. You ought to do it before it comes to the church. It's... The church and Jesus Christ goes after individuals and there's this idea of forgiveness. So put all that together so that this morning's sermon isn't the only statement about sin in the church. But don't neglect the text of the morning. Because Jesus says this, that if you're going to be a church of mine, you're going to be involved in discipline. And watch how he unfolds. Now let's go to the text. Verse 15. Verse 15 talks about step one. It says this, if your brother sins... Now, all those without sin, raise your hand. I'm just looking to be sure here. All right, so I'm assuming most of you, and by the way, the word brother can be brother or sisters. It works with both genders. So ladies, if you think, guys, they're the sinners, it's not us. You can't support that textually. It's men, women, brothers, sisters. It's in the community of faith. And the if, and by the way, there's five ifs in this text. And ifs are really cool little words that are important words. And the if assumes that this will probably happen. If a brother sins, and you can count on it, it's probably going to happen, or sister. And you're going to be one of them at one time. If that happens... Then the word against you is there, which I think in the best of the manuscripts probably wouldn't be there in the original. It's probably if, you're, if your brother's doing sin, even if it's not against you, and it might be against you, but you see a sinning brother or sister, then what you do is, here's postmodern gospel. You say, well, you know what? People do different things. That's just the way it is. Life has, you know, you do your thing. I do my thing. I can't be judgmental. Come on, Jesus said, judge not. That would be the postmodern interpretation. The Jesus interpretation goes like this. He says, go. (laughs) There's another big word, right? Geo. It's an imperative, which means you don't sit around and say, I wonder what I 
got to do. And, and by the way, nobody said it's going to be easy. But he says this, and, and you, it's clear. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That alone is an important little word there too, right? It isn't, here's what you do. You see somebody in sin, and now when you meet with your friends on Tuesday for lunch, you finally got something to say. Did you know? You know what they did. That alone word is an important word, right? Because the idea is, if there is sin and you see sin, rather than saying, let me tell how many, as many people as I can, because they can't wait to hear the story, that you say, I'm going to keep that story to myself, and I'm going to go to this person one-on-one, and I'm going to have the guts, I'm going to have the courage, and I'm going to love that person enough that I'm going to go to them, and I'm going to do step number one, and I'm going to tell them about their fault. And then, here's the second if, in verse 15. If he listens to you, he or she listens to you, And the if there assumes they might, there also assumes they might not. But that's not the point. The point is if they, and here's the key word, listen. And listen doesn't just mean your eardrums are working okay. And so the words come in, they resonate in your eardrum and they go wherever they go. Because, you know, sometimes you'll say to your kids, you don't say, did you hear me? You say, are you listening? I mean, a good parent would say it. You got to say it like that too. Are you listening? And, And that means not are you hearing because if they're, here, if they're not hearing, take them to the doctor. But if they are hearing, then the question is, are you listening? Meaning, does it come into your ear? Does it get into your head? Do you cogitate it, process it? Does it come into your heart? And then have you made proper response to what you've heard? That's what listening is. And by the way, the key to church discipline in all four steps isn't, so what sin did you do? Eh, that sin's not that big a deal. Well, that sin is a big deal. When you do big deal sins, you go to the fourth step and you're out of here, brother. Because Jesus seemed to hang around people that did the kind of sins that were those big sins in our mind. So it's not the sin that progresses or digresses or moves this thing along. It's the if he or she will not listen. And listen to that. In other words, if there's that just sort of blank stare, I don't care what you have to say, I'm not listening. That's when you process it to the next part. So it says this, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And I tell you what, it could say you've gained your sister. There aren't too many more pleasurable things in the church of Jesus Christ than to find that you've gained a brother or sister. And to find that, hey, you were an instrument of grace because it's not you that saves them. It's not you that forgives them their sins. They don't forgive themselves their sins. It's Jesus Christ. You know why we partook of communion this morning? Because the only hope you or I have for sin is the blood of Jesus Christ, period. But you have encouraged a brother to come and to again engage in what cleanses them from their sin. And it's a broken and contrite heart. And a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you'll not despise. So you gained a brother. And that's almost as though the gates of heaven are screaming for joy because one of the saints has brought one back into the fold or has brought them back. Boy, you wish it ended there, don't you? And by the way, I think most of church discipline ought to be, if you look at that chart, it ought to be self-discipline. We're doing it on our own in community. It isn't as though I'm on my own in a little box. It's that I've got a, I've got a small group or I've got a, a community of people and we're working on self-discipline. And then periodically, it's one-on-one. I would pray at College Park, the majority of church discipline is in those two categories. And, I, and frankly, I think it is. And I think we could work really hard on them because I'm not so sure that we're as convinced how big the battle is. And we think church is about give us a bigger building, make things easier, make things smoother than to realize that we are the people of God. And Satan wants nothing more than to destroy college park, not buildings. I mean, let him tear the buildings, but don't let him have the souls of our people. Right. That's what the battle is. And we need to battle it early on. 
Because the tendency is to try to figure out how to do the battle toward the end, and it's much more difficult than it is in the earlier stages. Well, look at verse 16, because it goes to step two. And, and you can hardly come to a text of Scripture without having a but in it, can you? You've got to have a but. And it, 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 there it is. So actually, you could translate, that word is used a couple of other times, and a good translation would have it three or four times in this text, but it's in this one. And it's the contrast. It says, you know what the reality is? Hopefully, most of the discipline goes on in the self-discipline, step one. But if he does not listen, that happens. Take two or, take one or two others along with you. Not everybody. Not people praying behind the scenes. It's you take one or two others along with you, and that's a little bit of a gutsy thing too, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And there's a little bit of an Old Testament background to that in Deuteronomy. So that it's not a he said, she said. It's not a one-on-one confrontation, which hopefully God will use that frequently. But it's one where you'll bring someone along, and it isn't necessarily that those people have personally observed the sin, But those people will come along to observe the process and they'll say either, you know what, you really handled this with grace, you seem truthful, we believe what you said, that person really rebelled and didn't listen, they can affirm the process, or they could also say, you know what, it seemed like you were really harsh. You really didn't approach them in the way Christ would probably approach them. And as a matter of fact, your evidence seems pretty weak. Maybe we ought to rethink this. So it gives, it gives in a sense, rather than, because I don't know about you, but I'm a sinner. And whenever I confront anybody else, it's a sinner confronting a sinner. So there you have it. Because who else is going to confront? Anybody. And then it's nice to have others. As a matter of fact, it's commanded by Jesus to have others that come along in that process. And as they come along in that process, the idea is now it will have more, that it will be affirmed. It will be affirmed by more than one. And hopefully, hopefully the person will listen. That's the goal. Hopefully the person will say, I have issues that I really need to repent of and to work on in my life. And you know what? In our church, it's been... It's been fun and sad to see that happen. Sad only because don't we wish we were all perfect? I wish we were the completed, consummated bride of Christ. Someday we will be. But until then, we live in bodies of flesh. We live in this world and we need one another. And we ought to be glad while we shudder. And somebody comes and we say, oh, here they come. But then we say, they love me and they're concerned about my soul. And them not coming could lead me to damnation. And that's not where I want to be. So step one, or pre-step, self-discipline. Step one, one-on-one. Step two, one or two others. Step three is verse 17. And it's not, it isn't even if he continues to sin. It's if he refuses to listen, if he doesn't repent. Then you do this, you tell it to the church. Which, by the way, that's only the second time in the Gospels that the word church is used. And both of them are in Matthew. And the one before was used in Matthew 16 where Peter makes his confession. And Jesus says, upon this rock, I'll build my church. And then he affirms this, the gates of hell. I I love the strength of that. Can't prevail against the church of Jesus Christ because he's guaranteed the success and the glory of his church. And now the word church is used again. And it's as though as we're moving toward that church that Christ has promised will not fail. A part of that is the community of faith together struggling, striving, doing hard things for the kingdom of God to preserve the integrity and the beauty and the purity and the glory of God's kingdom. And we've done this at College Park. And I've led it on occasion. And I'll stand there after a fresh encounter service and say we're marking a person for prayer. 
we're taking them to the third step of discipline. And there's days when I'll say, I'll trade that with anybody. Do you want that job? Because <laughs> if you think that we look at it and say, man, we just can't wait for the next time we get to do this. Here's what I say. Lord, by your grace, maybe never again. And yet then I would also say this. Lord, by your grace, don't make us slack in our responsibility as a church, as a community. And the church just isn't buildings. It's people. And people that get on their knees. And they get on their knees and they don't just pray for, oh, Susie's sick in the hospital. Pray for Susie that's sick in the hospital. We really should. That's incredibly important. But you know what's more important? Let's pray for Susie that's not sick in the hospital and she's led astray by her lust. Or Henry. Or put whatever name you want. If you're Susie or Henry, I'm sure I'm not talking about you. But let's be praying together in community. That's the point. Let's harness the church, the people of God. And let's go after. Because you know what's at stake? It's God's Christ church. That's what's at stake. And then look at the end of verse 17, and you hope it doesn't come to this point, right? And and I'm glad that it doesn't happen that often. But there is one final step. It says this, and if he refuses to listen, and then there's a little adverb there, even to the church? Boy, it's the whole church. And even then that person doesn't listen, which indicates that it's a hard heart, a very hard heart. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And to you that doesn't mean very much. If you don't care about tax collectors and you don't know what in the world Gentiles are, I'm not you, I don't, you know, I, I don't, who's, what's the last time you went up to somebody and said, are you a Gentile? Um, you just don't do that. But in that early first century context, here's what it meant to them. You're outside of the covenant. It, it doesn't get any glimmer, glimmer, it doesn't get any, there's some word, gloomier. There you go, I know it was a G word. It doesn't get any worse than you're outside of the covenant because you're no longer under that umbrella of the grace of the Almighty God and His name was Yahweh in the Old Testament and He manifests Himself as Jesus Christ in the New Testament and here's what the church is supposed to do. And man, is this sobering. And again, I've been involved in this and there's never a time when it happens that I don't think in my own heart that could be me. You know, apart from God's grace... And it's God's grace that distinguishes between me and that person. And it's also that sobriety of here's a person that's resisted and not listened for so long that they finally come to a point where the church says you need to be removed from fellowship because the purity of the church is that important. And the goal is always that the person will then listen. Maybe after the fourth step, there'll be this listening ears and this repentant heart that will draw one back. It it reminds me a little bit of, of, I remember my sister who in her teen years was somewhat rebellious which that's what a brother would say, right? But if she were here, she would say the same thing. And I remember she liked to argue with my dad and my brother and I were younger. So we learned from her, it's futile to argue with dad. He's bigger, stronger, smarter, etc., And he is going to win every time. And she didn't learn that, but we probably watched her anyway. I remember one time she was arguing with him and they were arguing, going back and forth. And she told me this story later. And finally he said, I, I'm done. You can do whatever you want. You're free. Because I'm not going to be involved in your life anymore. And, you know, the initial thought would be, yes. She told me she walked away from that. And she told me this later. You know, you never talk about that at the time. She said, I was scared to death. Because as much as she detested the discipline of the father, there was that sense of security. He cares. He's willing to come after me. And now he says, not coming anymore. You're not under my umbrella anymore. 
I can tell you this, that there's nothing, you know, whatever you think about church, here's what you ought to think about church. It's the community that we intertwine our lives together and we're a part of that kingdom of God. And I'm glad God's given us buildings and all these things are really cool. And yet here's what God needs to give us is broken and contrite hearts and people willing to engage in each other's lives. If you just come on Sunday morning and you hear somebody up here talking and Mark's a really good talker. And he's a really good preacher and he preaches God's word. And then you kind of feel comfortable and you leave feeling comfortable. That's not what church is about. Church is about people who hear God's word. They observe the ordinances and they engage with each other in their lives, even to the point of being willing to discipline them. That's what it's that's what it's about. You know, there are two illustrations that came to my mind as I thought about this. One was and I, I just recently read this book called The Church and the surprising offense of God's love, the offense of God's love, because to some people, and maybe to some of you, when you hear a sermon like this, it's offensive. Like, wait a minute, those guys were 2,000 years ago. We're modern people. We drive nice cars. We're sophisticated. We wouldn't, not only are we modern, we're postmodern. And we wouldn't do things like remove somebody from fellowship. That's what they did in the old days. And so he talks about the offense of that there's really something really loving about that when God does it. And he uses an illustration. By the way, I did a review on this that's online, which like it's the only one I have online. But it's on Think Online, which is a church's kind of a theological dialogue. You ought to go this afternoon and you ought to look at Think Online. You can find it in yourchurch.com and it's it's really cool. But anyway, he gives an illustration at the beginning of that great spiritual um, novel, The Scarlet Letter. <laughs> And um, that's supposed to be a joke because it's really not. But it presents this picture of a lady who had been immoral and she'd had a kid out of wedlock. And so they gave her an A on her chest. You know, you remember the story. And then as the story goes, you're, it talks about these old ladies in the village. And the old ladies were like, this scum of the earth. Actually, one of them said, she ought to be killed. And, and you go away from it saying, wow, how horrible to just segregate, to put this person in, in, into some sort of a box because we're all sinners. And, and when I read through that, I say, you know what, if that's the way church discipline is, I don't want to have any part of it. But then there's another illustration. One of my favorite preachers and writers is John Piper. He has a son that's about my son's age. And his son got involved in sin and pretty, you know, not really good sin. I mean, the kind of sin that even we good Christians would say, that's bad sin. He did it. He did quite a bit of it in his early 20s. <clears throat> and, and, and the church... And, and this John Piper's like pretty well known, pretty well thought of by some people. I guess he's not by others. But, but in his own church, his own church came to the pastor's son. And I'm a pastor and I have a son. And they put him under church discipline of all things. And now, the, and, and all stories don't end like this, but this particular one does. That John Piper's son repented of his sin. Sort of that prodigal that had eaten enough of the husks and the slime of the world. And said, I need to be in the community of faith. That's where I need to be. And he came back and in God's grace, at least as the story goes now, there was that beauty of reconciliation and restoration and the glory of God being honored even in the process of church discipline. And that's what we're after at College Park. We're after the glory of God. Let me, let me just give you, and I, there are a whole lot of things I wanted to say. And so I just put eight points and you'll see them in the manuscript. You don't even have to look at them now. I'm just going to rip through them real quick. But let me say this. We must practice church discipline for the glory of our holy God. Because I ask you this morning as a pastor up here preaching a text, trying to preach it kind of as it goes, is God holy or not? And we all affirm, I don't know, he's a nice guy. He's, he's holy. 
So much so in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's reiterated, holy, holy, holy. And that's probably for people like me that don't hear very well. And it's also this idea, don't miss the point. He's holy and all that goes along with holiness. And I don't understand it all. But if we practice church discipline, it's not primarily about me or you. It's about him. And either he is or he isn't. We must strive to keep the bride of Christ pure. Christ's church is bigger than any one of us. It is. I've got two daughters. And in my office, you can go into my office and you'll find pictures of them in these really beautiful white gowns. You know, and to me, they, they pick them out specially and to me they all look the same, but they still look very pretty, you know. That's all right, girls, go ahead and pick them out, do them, just don't ask your dad about it, ask your mom about it. And, and I remember them, I walked both of them down the aisle. And there's something about, and they're not pure, I mean, it's not as though they've never sinned, but I can sense what a, a, a bridegroom and a father would think about his daughter and his bride and desiring this pure bride. I remember when my wife actually walked down this aisle with this, she had a white dress on that was probably different, I don't know, but it looked really nice. And, 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 and my bigger thought was, I hope, this is mine. And I want her to be pure, and that's what Christ wants for his church. And then he tells us we need to be invigorated in the purity of the church, and it's hard work. But it's work that really depends on him. <clears throat> the purity of the church is not merely in the sexual area, and sometimes we think that the only time people go to the final step of church discipline is sexual. It's not. Because God looks at sin, and one of the things about that is sometimes that's more visible and sometimes it, it affects more people. The point is, we ought to be people who on a daily basis are praying, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That isn't just... A once every now and then. That ought to be that ongoing, continual self-examination because of the purity of the church. We do it in a loving act. There was a family in our church that went after. There was a couple in our church. Actually, there was, there was a person in their family who had gotten divorced or were getting divorced, and they did not have biblical grounds for it. It's just they wanted to. And the rest of the family was good, a good postmodern family. Cross your legs. Say, oh, okay, so when's the wedding? And um, because this person was getting married again. And, and the one family from our church said, we're going to confront. Now, how's that for Thanksgiving dinner stuff? They didn't do it in Thanksgiving, but Thanksgiving's coming. And they were willing to confront. And we don't even know the end of the story. By God's grace, maybe he'll call that person back to their senses. But in any case, I was encouraged while sobered, that a person was willing to do the loving thing rather than the unloving thing of, hey, well, what, when's the football game coming on? Well, I guess maybe your soul isn't as big a deal as whether the Colts win today or not because this is the first game of the season. Um, our priorities sometimes. Number five, we must seek justice for the oppressed. I wish I could spend time. I wish I could show you my office of people who have sinned and they've offended sometimes an individual over and over and over again. And there's something about church discipline that I think is intended to have at least some level of justice to it on earth, which ultimately will be had in heaven. <clears throat> the process must be slow, full of grace, but it must happen. The goal isn't retribution. It isn't, you did that, so we're going to do this. That's what retribution is. It's reconciliation. It's wake up. It's, you didn't hear the alarm clock, so I'm going to shake you. And then we're going to shake a little harder. And by God's grace, you'll come back to him. And then here's the message you ought to get when you leave here this morning. You can avoid much of church discipline 
my prayer would be that there would never be another time at College Park where we have to go to the final step of church discipline because people are handling sin in their own lives. They're going to go away from this service. We're going to have people on their knees before God saying, I need to repent of my sin, and they're going to act differently. And there may be a person that will go and confront somebody else so that it doesn't have to ratchet up to the final step. Boy, by God's grace, wouldn't that be a healthy church? (laughs) The healthy church isn't none of us sin. The healthy church is we're quick to repent. Man, we're the quick repenting church. And even that sounds kind of proud, doesn't it? Well, I got two more points and uh, like no more minutes. Don't know how that works. So I'm going to do it real quick. Point number two is the authority behind the purity of the church. Look at verse 18. And, and these next three or four verses, and I'm going to do them real quick. I wouldn't have put them in this context if I had been writing it, which is why I'm glad the Holy Spirit is the inspirer of the text of Scripture. It's verse 18 says this, Truly I say to you, Do you ever think Jesus would say, falsely I say to you? (laughs) Sort of redundant. I'm talking, it's true. Truly I say to you. But I think it's an emphasis. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And here's what the argument is there. And I preached, actually, this is virtually identical verbiage to chapter 16, where Peter makes his confession, and Jesus says, upon this rock I'll build my church. The gates of hell won't prevail against it, and I'm feeling really strong. And then he says, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And now he expands it, not just whatever Peter binds, but whatever the whole group of the the disciples, and I think it extends to the church, Whatever you bound will have been bound in heaven. And the nuance is, and and don't miss this, that what the church does has already been done in heaven. And here's the idea of church discipline. And we ought to be praying for our leadership. We ought to be praying for ourselves individually. That what we do, God not only would affirm and say, okay, good, I'm glad you did that. That we would be saying, God, what do you want us to do? What's your will in heaven? Because what you've bound in heaven, we want to bind here on earth. And what you've loosed in heaven, we want to loose here on earth. And when we practice church discipline, we don't want to be doing it alone. We want to be doing it in the authority of God himself, in the authority of heaven. And God promises that to his church. So as you progress, if you're in some sort of rebellious sin and you're moving down the track of church discipline, know this. It isn't just the church that's disciplining you. It's heaven. (laughs) And it isn't as though the church stands up and says, hey, we know all, we're God, and we're not, and we don't. But our mission is, in the church, is to represent him here on earth, right? Our prayer is, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not your will be done in heaven as it's done on earth. So the authority and the sobriety is based on God himself. Well, then the last point is this. The power of purity. Listen to these verses as I go through them too quickly. And again, I wouldn't have put these verses here, but they're really cool. In verse 19, it says, again, I say to you, and by the way, it's going to be true because it's Jesus talking. And look what he says. If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. You like that verse? I mean, take, cut that one out and put it, you know, put it in your refrigerator, put it on your car. And, and if you take it out of context, you can do a lot with it. Then you yank it out of context and you can say, I'm going to find a person, maybe two, and let's pray that God gives us a million bucks. And here's what we got to do. Because if we're going to pray together in a group and we all agree to it, we got to split the money. That's kind of a bummer, but that's the way. So may, let's ask for three million. Why not? Then we can split it a million each. And God said he's going to do it, didn't he? I mean, you read it there? Could, I could rant and rave on that all day. Man, if you get people... 
and, and then you miss the context of the whole New Testament and the Old Testament, and you certainly miss this context, was in the, which is in the, the matter of church discipline, because prayer that's answered by God is always prayer in his will. It's never prayer outside of his will. It's never the genie in the bottle, I'll do whatever you say. It's always prayer that starts off with, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, and then you pray. Or that actually is your prayer. And in this context, the prayer is this. It ought to be a group of two, three. It's like a community. It's like, you know, one of the things, if you come to College Park and you're not involved in some sort of small group, some sort of community, if you're not involved in a small group community, then just say, I go to this social thing every week. Don't say you go to church. Not that you have to be in a specific small group, but you've got to be in relationship with people where people are able to bring to your attention places where you're, you're blind. We sang that, open the blind eyes, unshut, I, the, that, whatever, however that song goes. You need to be in a, in a relationship that allows that, and not allows that, but where you're able to exercise that same kind of thing towards someone else. That's what the prayer is. We have people in our church. And I know at least one, I think there's several of them like this. There's three couples, that makes six. My math is really good this morning. They get together once a month, and their intention is this. They pray for their kids. And they might pray, pray that Johnny will be the next Peyton Manning, you know. And then I'm going to say, no, I think what they're praying for is they pray that Johnny will be sensitive to his sin really quick and early on so he doesn't go down to the tracks maybe we followed. And there are people, two, three, four, five, six, and they're praying in community for their kids. There ought to be husbands praying for their wives. Shocker. There ought to be wives praying for their husbands and not gossiping. There ought to be, there ought to be this community that's praying for the world and it's praying for the church because the church is pure because that's what God wants. Yeah, there ought to be all kinds. That's what the church is all about, isn't it? It's about people that realize we're in a war and we need each other. And then look, look at, look at verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And, and I know how that verse is typically applied. You, you have some sort of a meeting. You're thinking 20 people are going to be there for a church meeting, for a good thing. You're going to do something really nice. And only three people show up. And you're like, supposed to be 20. There's only three. But where two or three are gathered, there is God in the midst. So you feel a little bit better about it, I guess. And, and by the way, God is in the middle of two or three people, and he's also with you, right? He's, I mean, his Holy Spirit dwells within you. The point seems to be there's some dynamic of bringing people together, and I don't think the limit is two or three. Do you think God's present when there's 3,500 people gathered? I hope we all say absolutely, or we better be tearing down some walls, because I think God is present with 3,500, 4,500 people. He's present. Well, is God here today? Was God here when you partook of the Lord's Supper? You know, we're going to sing a song to conclude this sermon. We came this morning as a community and we took the Lord's Supper. My brother read, and I think appropriately so, that text that talks about examining yourself. And there's times I get scared at that text. We come, and I wish this table were long enough we could all sit at the table. And was, was Jesus at this table? You know, in our tradition... We don't think the blood and the cup, that's not really Jesus' blood. It's not really his body. I don't think it is. But I also don't think it's just juice and just a cracker. 
I think when the church holds these in our hands, we're saying that there's a very real sense that the presence of God is here with us. And when you take of that cup, here's what you should be saying, that his blood is able to cleanse my sin, and his blood cleanses the sin of a repentant heart. And so we ought to be here saying, wow, is that potent stuff. And then we ought to be saying, God, cleanse me of my sin. And that ought to be a regular, ongoing reality in the life of the church at College Park. So we're going to sing this song, and Eric and I talked about it, and it's one that I think is an appropriate concluding song, and I would ask you to sing it as a prayer to the Lord, thinking about the purity of his church. Boy, I hope you meant that as you sang it. You know, God will have mercy. He's a loving Savior, and he wants to forgive us, but he also wants our hearts to be broken in humility. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever and God's redeemed people said Amen Amen.